This is Dialogue, a podcast of the 100-year-old Lenten preaching series recorded live at Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis. I'm Scott Walters, rector here at Calvary Church. Tonight, my guests are Father Greg Boyle and Padre Gotuma. Greg Boyle is founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, a remarkable social enterprise that began in 1988 as a way to improve the lives of former gang members in East L.A. and has grown into the largest gang intervention, rehab, and reentry program in the world. He is also a best-selling author of several books, including Tattoos on the Heart. His most recent is a collaboration with the artist Fabian Deborah, executive director of the Homeboy Art Academy, titled Forgive Everyone Everything. Father Greg travels widely and speaks on the importance of meeting violence with humanity. Padre Gotuma is a poet and theologian and peacemaker and educator and podcaster and a few more things than that, whose work centers around themes of language, power, conflict, and religion. For five years, Padre was the leader of Corimila, Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation community. He has written books of poetry and prayers and a memoir and more. His most recent publication is Poetry Unbound, 50 Poems to Open Your World which expands on his, if I may use one of Podrick's favorite adjectives, his magnificent podcast, Poetry Unbound, which is part of the on-being constellation of magnificence. Welcome to you both. What a joy to have you both here tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. I've really been looking forward to this, partly, I mean, I like both of you, but partly because when I reached out to Podrick, he had landed earlier on the schedule, and I said, Podrick, what would you think about having a conversation with Greg. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> but you'd connected, there'd been a connection that had happened just in the last months or years. So I would love to each of you talk about how you discovered the other and what drew you to, they only met a few minutes ago, actually in person, but they're acquaintances. So what, what, what do you know about the other and what drew you to the other's person and work and all the things? <laughs> Don't look at me. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm a big fan. I listen to his podcast. I knew him through Krista Tippett, who's a mutual friend. And, and uh, a friend sent me uh, in the shelter, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. I, you know, so it's a book I recommend to everybody. So then when I heard that, that I kind of didn't believe that you would actually be here. Somehow I thought you were going to be you know, piped in or something from <laughs> some other place. So I just found out that you were actually going to be here in person. Here's how prepared I am. Um, <laughs> you know, just, I think, today. You know, <laughs> I, I asked Heidi, and I said, oh, so Patrick will be, like, you know, from Ireland? Or, oh, no, he's here. And I went, oh, my God. So I, I, I was totally thrilled. So <laughs> I'm, I'm a big uh, reader of you and listener. I came across your work, Greg, I was telling you just beforehand, um, somebody wrote to me a few years ago and said, um, can I have your home address? And I normally don't say yes to that, but um, <laughs> I, I really liked the way that this person wrote and said, they said, I think they worked in a library and said, I want to send you something. And it was Greg's book, Tattoos in the Heart, years ago. And um, I think it was even before Krista had interviewed you. And so I have a lot of um, time for Jesuits. And, um, well, I should say I have a lot of time for some Jesuits. <laughs> and maybe I have some time for some Jesuits. Oh, yeah. I'm, qu I'm quantifying it over and over. Anyway, you're you one like of those that? Jesuits that I have some time for. So, <laughs> um, and I, I really admire um, the work. And especially because um, you don't own it. You're, you're saying you're 
part of a group of people and you work together. And I, I feel like I'm introduced to other people who work with you and, um, and in that I feel like I'm brought into a village of people who like each other and irritate each other and I feel like, oh, I could like and be irritated by and irritate other people in that group. I feel like it's a lovely village of humanity that you bring into your work. And so I really admire that. So I'm delighted to be in the village of you. Yes, thank you. Likewise. Well, I think you both have this, this gift, right, of foregrounding other people. It's not all that you do, but it's part of what you do. These last couple of books, um, you know, Greg, you foreground an artist. I'd love you to say something about, about Fabian, who, his, who he is, what his story is, and then I'll ask you, Padraig, about some of yours. Yeah, when, when people say my latest book, you know, I, yeah. always, I always think of the whole language because that's one I actually wrote. Yeah. And so... Um, <laughs> In fact, I was on a plane not that long ago, and I was returning to my seat from the restroom, and I see this book is open, and it's that turquoise color, and I went, oh, my God, somebody's reading my book, and I couldn't believe it. So I walked by, tried to be low pro, and <laughs> I was just knocked out. I believe he was drooling, so it was... <laughs> So apparently reading my books is the next best thing to a CPAP machine. So, <laughs> But anyway, somebody came to me and, and said uh, they wanted to put together these um, thoughts for the day that I do occasionally. Now the homies do it and homegirls, and we begin our morning meeting with it, 500 people, and, and you, you end the morning meeting with a thought. So they were trying to transcribe them, and they were reading them off, uh, you know, because they videoed them or whatever. And, and, and it was just awful because it was elliptical and it was kind of, a lot of things were. So I said, well, it's, don't do that. You know, do, to just go if you want to do a compilation. But the, the main reason was I wanted uh, Fabian's art to be uh, highlighted. And so Fabian I've known since he was a little kid and got into a gang. Father was a heroin addict and... And as a kid, he would hide under a little coffee table and he would draw as his father would, you know, really be brutal with his mom. And, uh, and he was in our elementary school. And uh, two days before they were to graduate, he, uh, the teacher took away a drawing. He was drawing. He told him not to. He took it away and Fabian threw the desk at the eighth grade teacher so he didn't graduate and so the next thing was, he, next thing, he was a heroin addict and like his father and a gang member. Anyway, he's a brilliant artist, so I told Loyola Press, here, just highlight his stuff and then steal different things from, from my books, like a compilation, like a meditation book, or I don't know what they call those things, a devotional mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That was the idea. But forgive everyone, everything is a bumper sticker. So I pulled up behind this car, and I go, oh, shoot, I have the thought for the day today. And the bumper <laughs> sticker right in front of me was forgive everyone, everything. I went, though, that's it. So I went in, and I made up something because I'd forgotten it was my turn. And, uh, and now it's the title of a damn book. So I don't know. Is it just Fabian, or is art actually a part? Would you say art plays a part in a yeah, so role he, in Homeboy? Yeah, so he's the director of the Homeboy Art Academy, which is a separate location, and it's uh, in everything from uh, music to, to poetry. 
to all sorts of things, you know. So he runs that. And so we bus folks over from our headquarters, from our youth center to the art academy. I can't remember how many times a week they'll go over there, but he's brilliant. Yeah. Padraig, everybody knows you care deeply about poetry, but it's clear from your podcast and in the, in the book, you know, you're putting poetry to work in the world. This is, art has responsibility, it feels like to me. Um, can you speak to this idea of how art has a place or how you, how you go about choosing art and ask it to do some work in the world in a way that doesn't shoehorn it into an agenda? Does that yeah. make sense? It's a tension for me. Um, so, like, I'm lucky having grown up in Ireland where certainly when I was growing up, we were learning poems in Irish and English off by heart every week. One poem each week in each language um, from the age of five to 17. And so by the end of each year, you're supposed to have 35 poems off by heart in each of the two languages to be able to write an exam or whatever, or to recite it. Um, and so in that way, I feel like poetry has always had its own experience and existence for me. And that these, this was just the ordinary village school. This wasn't any private school. It was just the, our poetry is part of the culture in Ireland in a very powerful way. And um, that kind of put poetry into me. And it, it has put poetry into a lot of pe people in Ireland. Um, and I am very grateful for that. And... As a result, it has never been in my imagination that poetry doesn't have a voice in the public. I can't say what poetry's role is. I don't think art has a role, because then you're suddenly turning it into a strategic plan to say poems should do the following thing. It shouldn't. A poem should do whatever the poem wants to do. And even the poet, even the artist, doesn't know what the work of the poem is. You're surprised by it. It, it comes out of you, and then it looks back at you like some half-tame animal that also you don't own. And then it goes and does what it wants to do. And maybe you can catch up or maybe you can't. And other people will begin to get to know it and have their relationship with the art that came from you. And that, I think, is part of the strange, untamable nature of art. And it is an art of language, poetry. And I think every generation has had a crisis of language, whatever generation that is. And the crisis of language always feels particular. And these days we can speak about the crisis of language, which is about trustability, which is about what is the quality of language in public, which is about how is it that you can consider and discern, is somebody telling you the truth? And is somebody speaking authentically? And are they capable of speaking both with power and with vulnerability? And that's the current, I think, one of the, current crises of language. As, and by telling the truth, I mean telling the truth about the past as well, and owning and acknowledging that. And I think art can bear witness, poetry can bear witness to that. Mm. And I, I am in debt to the poets who have taught me some tools about doing that, which is not just about being a poet, it is about being a person in the world, to tell the truth, to not be frightened of the past, your own past, especially when it's shameful. That, I think, is a call to the integrity of language. And I am shaped and changed and moved by, by anybody who has used their words to do that, whether they call themselves a poet or not. I'm moved <laughs> by the capacity to do that. And as someone who works in poetry, I, w I want to amplify poems that are doing that about the human condition. I hadn't thought about it till this moment. They're not poems, but both of you are great excavators of the world, of what's been set aside by a lot of folks. Your, Greg, your, your sermon today was just a series of, a wonderful series of stories and anecdotes. You're brilliant at bringing to life 
stories of people that the world would just as soon not pay attention, give up on. Poets aren't exactly at the fore <laughs> in, in the power structures of the world. That feels like something, a, a work that's in common, as different as perhaps hmm. poetry and former game, gang members are. What, what gives you capacity to see possibility in these uh, overlooked lives or forms or... I don't I, you know I love poetry I love your poetry and I and I love listening to po- it, it's a, sometimes I, I you know it's like a singing in the shower if you're not good at it you know it's kind of <laughs> I wish I was a poet you know but then you end up just being an appreciator of poetry and the homies have a certain kind of poetry the way they talk if you really listen and because their stories are so captivating, I also find if you're preaching and if you're not telling stories, then people have left the room, you know. <laughs> so I kind of do this. And, and that comes from preaching in detention facilities for 40 years. I always tell three stories in every homily. And then you can give content, but you start to give content, then you watch. People are starting to leave you and you tell a story. You know, and, but I'm like that. I have a zero attention span, so I just project that on everybody. So, but that's how you honor. I mean, part of the thing is, you know, last night the two homies at, at St. Patrick's told their stories. One, one had done this a few times. One had never done it. And both, you're talking about power and vulnerability. That's what they had, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then everybody's making progress in terms of are you, do you remain a, a stranger to yourself? And we, we've had lots of conversations, myself and the other two. They're off since we're leaving tomorrow morning early. They're seeing the city. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, um, but it's an exploration for them to tell their story. They start to, to go, you know, am I a stranger to myself? Do I, you know, what's my narrative? And we've had lots of conversations about that, about, uh, you know, why'd you join a gang, you know? Join a gang and see the world, wine, women, and song. <laughs> Is that your narrative? <laughs> a, a, a thing that um, I was telling them today, and I, I thought, where did that come from? Where did I steal that from? It's a thing about belonging gone wrong. Oh, yeah. And, and that's a kind of a connection uh, the tribalism currently in our country, gangs, mm-hmm. Northern Ireland, you know, and when they try to kind of present a narrative that's that sort of they had my back and and a second family and all the things that people project onto them, oh, they just want to belong. So I was telling them, no, if a kid wants to belong, they join the Boy Scouts, but they join a gang because they want to die, because. Mm-hmm. It's about a lethal absence of hope. So anyway, we went back and forth, and I said, yeah, gangs are belonging gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, when I went, later on, I went, where did I steal that from? Mm-hmm. And it was, I don't know where you wrote that. I stole it from someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Good posts borrow, great posts steal. That's what T.S. Eliot said. We kind of moved on to talking about belonging. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's go. a current word. It's a marketing word, you know. Um, I was talking to a fellow the other night who works for, is it Buick? Are they cars in America? Uh-huh. Do I have that right? <laughs> and um, he uh, was saying that they're late. He's, he's in marketing and he said that their latest campaign is um, your new Buick will be so you or something like everybody will say that's so you. 
And what that's doing is selling people's belonging back to themselves for the price of a car, an, <laughs> an expensive car. So buy this and you'll be you. And everybody will say that you'll be you. Like that's a profound form of the capitalization of something that a car company doesn't own, something that your bank doesn't own, hmm. something that anybody who will exact a cost from you doesn't own. Whoever is going to mark the borders of that belonging is untrustable because it's all about money in that sense. And other places, the cost of entry is about your integrity or about your capacity to tell the truth or um, your loyalty to somebody or you need to take on the, the mantle of hating a group of people in order to belong here or dehumanizing, you know. Difficult to get in, easy to be kicked out. Belonging has been commodified. I don't trust it when anybody says to me that belonging is what's happening because I just think, at what cost? Who's charging? Who's, who's guarding that border? And who'll kick me out? Or who'll refuse me exit or refuse me entry? And I, I do not like the commodification of belonging that's happening in contemporary culture and the way that it's being sold because I don't trust who it is that is um, organizing the imagination of it. Belonging is something that's much more important to the human condition than anything to do with what can be sold on the internet. Human encounter can happen in really moving ways and all belonging is temporary. Anything that says that it isn't is lying. We're all going to die. And so, um, therefore, there has to be an understanding of the temporary nature of, of this. And for me, that's one of the reasons I love poetry is because a poem isn't trying to say this is a scripture of the world. A poem is saying I needed to write this or I wanted to write this or I have no clue where this came from. It's a temporary offering of language for a moment, often unheld, often a surprise. And that kind of language, I think, is of great interest. I, I think Greg and I both share an interest in how it is that human encounter can happen. And you can never say this human encounter is going to last forever in friendship and connect, connection and community. It has to be continually made and remade and made and remade. And you hurt each other and you mm. come back and you find the language towards each other. Mm. That's, that's the kind of belonging that I go, okay, that is trustable because that is malleable, changeable, and you understand. Yeah. But it's also the, you know, because you're at Homeboy, you know, uh, there are 1,100 gangs in L.A. County, 120,000 gang members. And so everyone who works there, you know, the, all the homies who work there, everyone has multiple, multiple enemies. So you have to make croissants, you know, side by side with somebody you used to shoot at. But there's... You also want to shine a light, you know, it's kind of the, the opposite of the gang. The gang is the, you know, one false move belonging. And homeboy wants to be the, the no matter whatness belonging. And certainly everybody's going to die and no one will live forever. But there's a kind of a sense that you can live in the forever if you, if you are a part of a community of cherished belonging where people start to inhabit their true selves in loving. And, and I think that happens. I mean, Homeboy does what it does and helps however it helps. But you're always announcing a message in New Hope with power and vulnerability that what if we were to invest in each other rather than just try to incarcerate our way out of stuff. But it's also you want to be somehow the front porch of the house everybody wants to live in. So I... I we're kind of a tribe that wants to end tribalism. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's possible. 
because it ends up being the secret sauce. It's the thing that people return to. Whereas we used to fret if somebody reoffended, went to prison, uh, relapsed, started to get high again, started to write on walls, and we said, look, we love you. Come back when you're ready. And we used to fret whether they would or not. And then we'd no longer do that. We have a total confidence that they'll be back, and everybody comes back. Because once you have a dose of, of having been cherished, that's palpable, where people feel seen and, and cherished, then it's just the most compelling thing there is. And it's eternal, even if it ends in the way that we're all going to end. But somehow, somehow I, you know, it's more powerful than death. You're trusting that we do belong. Whatever Buick says, it sounds like, and, and forming a community that trusts, trying to form a community that trusts that we all actually belong. It's I'm just the, the paradox here that's beautiful that you're articulating is that the deep offense we take at manipulating something like our need for belonging is because it's so precious and so basic well, to talk us. Talk about yeah. trustworthy. What is trust? What what can you trust in 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 this context of community or kinship or connection? Um, What's trustworthy? A friend of mine said recently that she thinks that friendship is the greatest treasure and often the most underpraised under treasure um, in the world. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was beautifully said, the way that she referred to it as a treasure. Um, Joe Love is her name. What a lovely name. <laughs> uh, and uh, she's a great friend. She's a loyal friend to her friends. And... I found myself thinking about how, how right that is, that friendship is something of profound, profound trustability. Yeah. Um, it's never guaranteed. It's always made and remade, you know, and it can be broken as well. And I think that's part of the vulnerability and the power of it, yeah. is that it needs to be tended. Um, so I, I think if I was... That's the first thing that comes to my mind. What about you? What, what, when you think about what's trustable... Well, I think it's kind of the no matter whatness. You know, you're trying to indicate, you know, to be in the world who God is, and and people who are kind and and open always to whatever is capable of repair. And uh, we sort of engage at Homeboy in attachment repair, you know, and on the premise that people come with a disorganized attachment, you know, and and it's. And it's kind of obvious. And everybody's in a different place. And it's like an AA meeting. Some, some folks are 20 years sober. Some folks are 20 minutes sober. And somebody's drunk, but they're there. And in the old days, like at the silkscreen factory, um, where we FedEx, not UPS. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, <laughs> I was corrected at lunch. Um, I remember years ago, Ruben, who runs the place, he says, you know that guy Hector you sent over here to work? I said, yeah. Well, he doesn't want to be here. I said, well, where is he? Here. (laughs) I said, trust me. You know, he's difficult, and he's hard-headed, but he's there. And so I I think you can trust, again, kindness as the only non-delusional response to everything. 
And so then that becomes trustworthy. It's, it's how friends are, are with each other, with a no matter whatness. It doesn't mean you get, you know, as the homies would call it, butthurt, you know, and you bump into each other and you, you go, boy, you know, and the ending of a friendship is always possible. But if people find their true selves in loving and they let love live through them, then uh, probably return becomes less of a, a value. And, and that, I don't know, it creates a kind of sturdiness within the community where people go, well, I'm going to love you no matter how difficult you are or how much you say off. And, and that's kind of the air we breathe at Homeboy, because people are always saying that to each other, you know? <laughs> so. The way you're talking about trust, it, it, it sounds a lot like the way we talk about faith. I mean, trust has to exist in this place where it might be broken, where it's risky, where you might be told to F off, where you might, it might not be, re- be returned. And it's this tricky thing to cultivate in a, in a community. Okay, we're in a church. I want you all to talk about Jesus. I'm not making as big a jump as it sounds like, but when I think about cultivating a community that is both deeply disruptive and often challenges the, the, the misplaced places that I'm looking for belonging, and Jesus was both disruptive and also I think he was trying to, I hope, was trying to create this community that was based on some other underlying assumptions about what makes one a member. How would the person of Jesus, and maybe even a, a story or two that might play into this conversation? Does he matter? <laughs> um, I did tell Scott earlier on that I had a poem about Jesus, which I'll read in a while. I was in Mass years ago, and um, the, there was a, a woman nearby me, and there was a small little fellow next to her, I'm guessing her son, I'd say he was five, you know, very fidgety, smiley little fellow, lovely. And... Um, when the priest um, uh, blessed the sacrament and held it up, and there's the moment of total silence, the small fellow goes, hello, Jesus! <laughs> <laughs> and the mother burst out laughing and tried to shut the little fellow up. And he, you know the way kids know I'm not in real trouble. Like, so he just shouted it out again, which I thought was magnificent. <laughs> and I... I mean, to speak about Jesus of Nazareth is difficult because he has been so weaponized. He, the language of him has been so brutal. And what I'm from Ireland, my God, what Britain did in the name of religion throughout the hundred plus countries that they tried to be in, in terms of the commodification of that, that is war making. So in terms of to bring religion along through colonization. And um, Jesus didn't stop it. And so I'm not frightened of him in order to say, look, I kind of wish he did a bit more in terms of, like, (laughs) if if he is God, I wish he'd stop that shit. (laughs) And I genuinely mean that. I'm not just trying to be smart um, because I have a problem with living in a world where somebody who stood up for standing up against justice, um, so much injustice has been done in that name. So many powerful people have become more powerful um, as the result of following somebody who advocated a way of powerlessness. Um, so I, it's hard to talk about him. And I, I regularly think about that small fellow whose heart was open and who brought in such spontaneity and creativity 
and and love in that moment. Something new was made mm. uh, in that moment. I'm guessing somebody had said to him, when the bell is rung or when the priest does this, that's when Jesus comes. And he mm. thought, well, I'll say hello. How, how magnificent, <laughs> you know. So I have spent all of my life, really, thinking about Jesus of Nazareth and trying to believe in him or hate him or love him in ways that feel authentic, in ways that feel true, in ways that feel like the circumstance of the suffering of a country, the suffering of a life, as well as the potential of Jesus of Nazareth's extraordinary bravery um, are present. And to treat him as a human, I'm kind of uninterested in seeing him as a God puppet, because then he's just a God puppet, you know. So when he went and prayed and asked his friends to watch out for him, was he wondering about escape and his deep disappointment when his friends, when he says, couldn't you even watch an hour? You know, I, I don't want to think about that in terms of the significance of it, in terms of salvific history. I want to think about it from the point of view of somebody who might have been thinking, could I live with myself if I escaped? Hmm. Um, and I, I, like, I like that side of the imagination. I'll read a poem and then I'll, um, uh, we'll hear what you think about Jesus. <laughs> um, Father. <laughs> so here's a poem called Here is the Lamb of God Who Takes Away the Sin of the World. You weren't that perfect, weren't lamb pure or cocksure with certainty. You weren't as innocent as you were made out to be. You knew people, you knew power games, knew that the main ambition of ambition is ambition. You knew the names of other people's fears because you had plenty of your own. You knew the touch of a friend was not dependent on their cleanliness, and you knew this because you knew need, knew the way that story bleeds through the actions of a day and how shame makes us play parts that are beneath us. You are beneath us and above us in the song we sang as children. You are in the piss and blood. You are spit mixed with mud. You are the rotting hand of God waiting for a hand to hold. You're not gold, you're rock. Hmm. <laughs> what do you got, Father? But, yeah. <laughs> uh, let me read a text from a homie. Um, <laughs> actually, yes, there's a homie named Sergio who I call my spiritual director, and every morning we communicate. I get up really early at 2.45, and he gets up really early. And we'll read the readings from the day, and, and he'll... He says these things that are just so remarkable. But he always says, you know, we're meant to do Jesus one better. And acknowledging that Jesus is a rock and not gold is, is part of the whole thing. You know, I, I, you read Jesus, he sees with everybody else that this guy is having seizures. He thinks, like everybody else, that the guy is possessed by a demon. He isn't. He has epilepsy. But that's just because Jesus was a man of his time. When I hear, uh, you know, Pope Francis say homosexuality is not a crime, that's because he knows the God of love. But then when he says it's still a sin, that's because he's an 85-year-old Argentinian. And, and that's okay. You know, you're all trying to make your way. In my way, I'm I'm, you know, 68 years old, and I'm a man of my time. And there are things that you get and you, you see only not so clearly. 
But I, I was cooking dinner for uh, all the novices. And whenever they have a lot of people, they ask me to cook. Because I kind of like it. It's like a Zen thing for me. But all these five, five novices, there are 20 of them, five come into the kitchen. I'm trying to make sure the chicken isn't burning. And, and, and one says, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. How do you talk to people about faith? I go, shit. You know, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to keep the polenta from cl- clumping. And, and I, how do you talk to people about faith? And I said, well, I don't. All five of them gasped, audibly gasped, which kind of shocked me. And I said, well, it's about living as though the truth were true. It's, otherwise, you stay stuck in creedal statements, and, and it's in your head, and it's belief systems. And occasionally, it will fall to your, wander down to your heart. But it has to make its way to your feet. And recently, we had a bishop who was murdered who was the real deal, Bishop Dave O'Connell is from Cork. Mm. I've known him for 30 years, and I had seen him a week before he died. Just the real deal. He lived as though the truth were true. He put first things recognizably first. When he was named a bishop, every priest in the diocese says, whoa, this never happens. They never picked this guy to be a bishop. I mean, it was sort of remarkable. And... He allowed his faith to find its way to his feet. It was about where he stood. It was the stance he took at the margins, always worked with in, in the poorest communities. And he was the real deal. And it was this morning in the New York Times, there was, what's his name? I don't know how to pronounce his name. Russ uh, Douthat? 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 I think it's Yeah, Douthat. I don't know how you pronounce it. But, but he went on and on about liberal Catholics and conservative, it's about the marrow of the gospel. And as nearly as we can do it in 2023, you you try to kind of, you know, lightly have your fingers on the pulse of it. And I read a bishop recently, you know, who was saying, well, inclusive is not all that it's made to be. I go, what? You know, (laughs) excluding people sometimes is not that bad. And at the end, he said, you know, we'll include people, but on Christ's terms. I said, but inclusion is (laughs) among Christ's terms. Inclusion, nonviolence, unconditional loving kindness, compassionate acceptance. Those are the terms, which is to say, doors wide open. And I, I read it, and I thought, why would he be so frightened of inclusion? But certainly, the antidote is to stay close to the bone, you know, to the marrow, and uh, and allow your faith to make its way to the feet. Which remind me of the when your feet are sore. Oh so, yeah. What is that? <clears throat> There's a phrase you can say in Irish from West Kerry. Um, it, it's kind of a poetic way to talk about trust. And the phrase is, you are the place where I stand on the day when my feet are sore. Yeah. Beautiful phrase. I mean, it's not like everybody says that to each other every day. You know, it's just a very particular poetic phrase from one part of Ireland. So, um, and, it, and it's, it's about friendship. Basically. Friendship and trust. Yeah. 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 You are the place where I stand on the day when my feet are sore. Or even to be more accurate in the translation, I take my standing from you on the day when my feet are sore. So, yeah. Uh, 
it's a lovely phrase. Yeah. Padraig, I've heard you talk about the complexity of word like reconciliation. So, Greg, you're talking about this radical inclusion, radical acceptance, and I've also heard you in difficult situations talk about, I don't know that reconciliation is possible in this. I'm not sure there's a, a place to be reconciled back to. Yeah. Um, how, did the, how are these in conversation, a radical sense of forgive everybody everything? Full stop. I didn't see any asterisks on your cover. Mm. And the, incar- the, wor- the world you described of this very incarnate Jesus in your poem mm. is limitation and hurt and protection of the vulnerable. And which, how do those live together, mm. those two visions? Um, I, uh, I suppose I'm always made wary about binaries. You know, I read mm-hmm. a book at one point years ago that kind of said, you know, you can forgive or you can be bitter. And I just found myself bored of the book because I thought, <laughs> like, if, if that's the options, well, then I'm in trouble. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I like the idea that there is a spectrum of positive responses to the difficulties of the world. And um, forgiveness is one of them, if, if it's yeah. cho- chosen freely. Um, but also there can be seeking for justice, there can be change, there can be healing, there can be all kinds of truth recovery. You know, in, when it comes to a place that's known violence, I, I like to see a suite of options. And one of the things that often happens in places of um, pain and war is that uh, the people who are trying to do the good work end up fighting against each other. You know, so you've got the, the people who are doing encounter work fighting against the people doing the policy work, fighting against the people doing the educational reform, fighting against people looking for the money, fighting against people doing the auditing, you know. And that's just a very convenient form of divide and conquer. Mm-hmm. And what I'm really interested in is the capacity for people to go, I'm so glad the policy people are doing the policy because I can take their policy and use it for the work that I'm doing in human encounter or use it for the work doing in educational change or all of these kinds of things. And so I, I like the idea of considering that there's a suite of good options in response. Um, I remember being at a, an event once where it was, it was almost all LGBT people um, and myself and others, all of us LGBT people who are tired and exhausted of trying to stand up for our own rights, you know. Um, and somebody, his husband had just died and he had nursed his husband um, lovingly and tenderly. And even at the funeral, somebody had turned up trying to start a fight. It was just a, a person of religion. Um, had turned up and there was just such discourtesy in it and this particular man said I'm tired and now I'm ashamed because I don't feel like I can be out the front doing the work in public and it was so lovely to see a community of people going that's fine like we're here you know mm-hmm. it's, it's your turn to rest you've been giving mm-hmm. us all time to rest for a long time it's your turn to rest we'll do that I've got the energy for that shit today so <laughs> you don't that's mm-hmm. totally fine take a day take a decade it's all grand you know mm-hmm. uh and so within the idea of that, that's where I like to see all kinds of positive response to pain. Mm-hmm. Um, revenge, fury, uh, well, no, fury is okay because it can be creative, but revenge um, and things like mm-hmm. that, that, are, that whose aim is to be destructive, mm-hmm. I, I think those fail the human imagination. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in not considering them as options, but I'm interested in having a suite of good options as a response to that. Reconciliation being one of them too, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's about having the options of good things without feeling like, well, there's the good way and then there's the highway to hell. You know? yeah. I'll choose the highway to hell in that situation simply out of being stubborn. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
Anything to add to yeah, that? Yes, yeah, so, so I'm sort of uncomfortable with the title of that book, you know, which was kind of oh, forced good. upon me. Yeah, no, because uh, I always think, you know, don't settle for forgiveness, hold out for mercy, which is this whole other thing. So speaking of Sergio, who emails me, I think it wasn't the other day the gospel was how many times? 70 times, 70. And he, and he, text, he emailed me and he said, I don't know. There's just too much back and forth in forgiveness. We should just have forth. <laughs> <laughs> Which, and then he says, is mercy. And then he talked about, you know, the father running to the son, and, and there was no back and forth. There was not, well, what do you need to say to me? There was no back and forth. It was all forth. In fact, it was, you know, like... Um, the prophet Muhammad has Allah saying, you know, if you take one step towards me, I'm going to take 10 towards you. If you walk towards me, I'm going to run to you. It's mercy. Way better. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of uncomfortable mm -hmm. because forgiveness waits. And there is no waiting with mercy. You just, it's forth, you know. And I'm much better with that. And that comes again from a place where you don't really care, you know, which is a healthy thing. A homie named Grumpy, who his mother used to put cigarettes out on him and, and hold his head in the toilet and flush till he nearly drowned. He ran away from home at nine, which was very, uh, you know, the sensible thing to do. And he joined a gang. And at 19, he was that homeboy. Ten years, and he had never spoken to his mother. One whole summer, she had him on a chain for three months, the entire mm -hmm. summer, June, July, August, on a chain in the backyard, and she would throw food out to him. And when she unchained him, he ran away forever. Mm -hmm. So 10 years, he says, I want to talk to my mom. And he, was, he had inhabited the, the truth of who he was, that he was exactly right. And, and he became that truth. And he said, I want to talk to my mom. God, are you sure? He said, she's the only mom I have. So he went into my office. He came out minutes later, and he was clearly shaken. And this is the woman who brought him into the world, and I'm going to presume quite mentally ill. And this is what she says to him after 10 years. She says, tu eres basura. You are garbage. And he had big tears in his eyes. I said, you didn't believe her, did you? He said, oh, no, I forgave her. But what he really was was forth, you know. It was just mercy. He didn't wait. He didn't expect her to say anything. And it was all letting love live through him. And because he had found his truth. Hmm. And, and, and even how horrible that is, it just couldn't touch him, you know. Mm. Mm. That's so moving that somehow he had been loved into a sense of generosity. Yeah, and uh, mercy. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. And didn't, didn't have that score to settle, which of course couldn't be settled. There's no yeah. settling of it. Yeah. Even if he had a limited sense of yeah. what uh, was her malady, you know. Sure, who cares? I mean, he had a vague sense sure. that maybe she wasn't right. Sure. And I, that, yeah. That I, nobody healthy yeah. puts cigarettes out on their kids. Sure. But yeah, because diagnosis only goes so far. Yeah. Like I'm struck with his how he loved himself. 
in that, that, that yeah. extraordinary freedom in himself. Like that is... And it, couldn't have, it, it only could have happened if that had happened for him, where mm. he, I know who yeah. I am. Mm. Yeah, oh. yeah. If vengeance was gone. Vengeance won't function in that. Yeah. Rage might, but not vengeance yeah. that's calculated. Yeah. Well, rage is just energy. <laughs> oh, I have 11 more things I want to ask you, and it's 7.03, and I promised we'd ask some other folks here. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I did want to ask you too about prayer, but so put that in the back of your okay. minds, uh, if, how prayer might like feed into this process of, I want to be this person you've just described, Greg, to, to confront, to be, to be able to bring this kind of energy into the world in spite of the world that's in my tiny ways. Would, thoughts on prayer? Yeah. Oh like God. how that would. <laughs> you go here. I'm going to use your gesture and point at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say, you know, greeting, which I really love, and uh, and have used that. So I'm a kind of a mantra person. So I get up really early, and I have my little practice, and and I walk for an hour, and so I'll have just kind of this mantra that will breathe in and breathe out. And anyway, I try to do it all day, but I do it with some intentionality in the morning. But I love prayer as greeting what is and what's happening, and no matter how awful it feels sometimes about what's happening. You know, you just you want to be where your feet are and remind yourself to be there. And so, I don't know. I think prayer and practice has gotten um, simpler, clearer over the years. It wasn't so much in my early... I'm 50 years a Jesuit. So in the early years, it was kind of more panic... <laughs> and now it's just kind of resting in the stillness of God and trying to return to it. Yeah. Uh, the homies, you know, always talk about recovery, you know, one day at a time, and I go, whoa, that's too long, you know. <laughs> so then you, you connect your cherishing to breathing, mm. and you cherish with every breath you take. Mm. And so cherishing is actually not hard, but remembering to cherish is really difficult. And that's kind of the practice, I think. Mm. Think you'd add there? Yeah. Uh, my mother once said to me, we were chatting over a cup of tea in Cork, and she said, have I ever told you about the time Our Lady appeared to me? And <laughs> I was only half listening, and then I was suddenly really listening. <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> and um, she said, I was in bed, and it was around the time when your younger brother was about four or five. So she was referring to a period of time when she was profoundly and seriously depressed for many, many years. So in mm. bed wasn't just one afternoon. Mm. So anyway, she said um, her own mother had, wasn't long dead. And she said, um, uh, she said she woke up in the middle of the afternoon because a strange woman had walked into the room. She said she looked around 70, looked like she was dressed out of pennies, which is a little bit like Walmart or, you know, just an ordinary shop that you'd go to, you know. Um, she said iron grey hair, short, curly, um, and she said, I knew immediately it was Mary. And she said, Mary sat on the side of the bed. And she said, I felt the depression of the mattress where Mary sat. And Mary looked at her and my mother looked back, lying in bed. And Mary said, um, you never liked me very much, did you? <laughs> <laughs> and my mother said, no, I didn't actually. And Mary said, that's okay. And then my little brother was four or so walked into the room and my mother looked at the, where he'd wandered in and then looked back and Mary was gone, the star of the sea. And I find that story 
to embody something of of the spaciousness of something we might call prayer, mm. which is the capacity where where the very thing where you might think I didn't do it right, somebody goes, yeah, it's okay, yeah, and mm. she's telling the truth back. Mm. Mary, the mother of God, is telling the truth to my mother that my mother couldn't bear, mm. and somehow my mother needed that, and in this experience was asking that back. And I, I don't call myself a believer. I'm in the room next door. It's too complicated for me to, to subscribe to any doctrine. But I think the question, about, um, uh, the question about veracity of that story is absolutely failed if you think it's going to be proven through forensic analysis. Uh, it's proven through something to say, and what happened afterwards? And did life become a bit softer? And by which I don't mean a radical transformation, everything became easy, just a small bit easier. And my mother said, it was easier to pray the rosary after that. And she said, I like praying the rosary. It's a nice thing in the day. And what a, what a lovely, humble imagination about what prayer is meant to do. You know, it's not an escape from the world. I think it actually might be an entry into it. Yeah. And therefore, that experience of meeting Relt Namara, as we call her in Irish, Star of the Sea, um, that was um, profoundly beautiful. And I think that is what prayer can be. Mm. What's on your hearts? What's on your minds? Who has a question? Here we go. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on partitioning forgiveness and reconciliation as two separate but related theological and social ideas, particularly in this divided time. Well, I, I'm curious because of um, you know, we're talking about peacemaking, and and I and I in my early days, you know, we probably I did a lot of truces and ceasefires and shuttle diplomacy in my parish that had eight gangs, and and then at some point I stopped doing it because I, at least in that context, it served the cohesion of gangs, it supplied oxygen to gangs, and then because I knew that gang violence was about something else, it wasn't Northern Ireland. I remember Tom Hayden, who was a friend of mine, and we went to Northern Ireland together once, and, and he, was, he, he would talk about peace dividends in Los Angeles, and how can we, and I go, and we would fight. I did his funeral, but, <laughs> but we would always fight about this because I think it's the wrong, it just didn't work. You couldn't sit folks, pe folks down because there was nothing. So I'm old-fashioned because people would criticize me. And I said, I'm old-fashioned, you know, in terms of peacemaking. I think it requires conflict. And there's violence and gang violence, but there's no conflict. It's not about anything. It's about, you know, the traumatized and the despondent and folks who are mentally not well. And, and their violence is a language. Mm. And, and you want to know what language is it speaking. So then you infuse hope to folks uh, for whom hope is foreign, and you enter into this exquisite mutuality of relationship, and, and, uh, and you receive people, and you allow your heart to be altered, and, and you let yourself be reached. And the byproduct of it is peace. But we, we're kind of a head-on kind of society where we want to address stuff right away because it's kind of self-congratulatory. We address this head-on. 
Yeah, but it's not about this. It's mm. it it points to something. Mm-hmm. It's it's indicating. And let's address what it's about as opposed to calming the cough, you know, of a lung cancer patient. So but but that's different. You know, your experience is, is different than in than gang violence. Yeah. I like the generosity of what you're saying and the idea to say that you're looking for something that's about building on the flourishing of an imagination and the flourishing of a community. And I think where that's possible, it's a really good thing. And this isn't even the other side of it. I think there's also realities where we are speaking about societies where you are looking for in policy to have something like reconciliation. So the north of Ireland has the world's most accountable police force service in the world. Um, because it didn't before. <laughs> and that's an act of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. The world's, we have a separate independent body that polices the police. And um, there's often profound tension there and where collusion is investigated by the Ombudsman's office in terms of looking at that. And that is an act of reconciliation to say we are, there, there, there's an intervention there. There's an intervention in that that is acknowledging a problem and is saying we're putting something in place to make it better. There was a, a, a deliberate approach of, of hiring people for the police service who were from Irish Catholic backgrounds because previous to the Good Friday Agreement, it had been something like 97, 98% people from British Protestant backgrounds, which therefore meant that there was a, a, a terrible weighing in terms of a particular point of view when it came to that. So that's an act of reconciliation in structure. It's also an act of a certain form of policy, reparation. So forgiveness, reconciliation, reparation, all justice-seeking, truth acknowledgement, all of these things I, I think are very helpful. Thinking about it on an individual level, I think of forgiveness as something of where, where I want to wish somebody well, where, that, where perhaps they have hurt me. Okay? Um, I have given myself permission for a long time to think that wishing somebody well can involve all kinds of things. You know, it might be that I wish them well and me far away from them, you know. <laughs> and that's sensible, you know. Um, I like the idea where I can wish them well and imagine something of some kind of reparation and some kind of coming together. And sometimes that has worked. And other times it has worked because I've given myself the time. Or, and I can only speak about that because presumably other people have had to do the same for me, where they've needed space for me and where they then need the time, with time, are able to say, okay, we can, we can, they could forgive me uh, as well. And so I suppose all of these things feel malleable with each other. 7.15, but if there's one more, yeah. I've been um, listening since I heard the, the interview on, on being, I guess it's maybe 10 years ago or so, um, in reading. And I was at Novel Bookstore when you presented um, Barking to the Choir. And someone asked you, how you deal with loss, I think. I'm not really sure, so I've been wanting to clarify this now for about four years. (laughs) And I'm really curious anyway to hear that and sort of broken down. Because in that first interview with Krista Tippett, you said something about losing someone and the uh, person you lost that someone to was also your son. And I'm really curious about how you deal with loss and with the amount of loss that you deal with what you go through to deal with that. Yeah, uh, um, thank you. So I'm going back to L.A., and I'm, I'm uh, planning a funeral of a, a little kid named Diego. He was 14 when he worked at Homeboy, and uh, he was 18 and was killed, and his mother worked at Homeboy. So 
you know, just a sweet, amazing kid. Part of the thing is you have to find the thing that death can't touch. And uh, so because I'm kind of weird that way, I would think, just because I've buried so many people. And so whereas a homie said to me once, you know, death is a punk. And I go, yeah, that's true. So you have to put death in its place, otherwise um, you're doomed. And there are all sorts of fates that are worse than death. So if death is the worst thing that can happen to us, if, if you think that, then you really don't have access to life itself. So recently I did a huge funeral, uh, rarely at Hope Dolores Mission, and because I've been connected there for 40 years, a woman who was just, you know, revered, a community organizer, a legend, died very young. And, and so the family asked me to do it, even though I'm not the pastor there anymore. And it was outside mass because we didn't have room for all the people. So it was a huge, I'd never seen this before at Dolores Mission. And I guess I must have had some anxiety about it. So the night before I had this dream, and this woman, Rita, Rita Chaitis, she appeared to me in the dream. And it was one of those things where I woke up and I wrote down exactly what she said. And she said, all of us are born and all of us will die. And all we have left is the tender time in between. I got up, turned the light on, I wrote it down word for word, and uh, it became kind of the centerpiece of what I said the next day. But I think that's true. It doesn't mean you don't feel the pain of, and the loss of stuff. And uh, we had a lot, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of, I had double, lots of double wedding, uh, double funerals of COVID folks and parents and, and uh, grandparents of homies. Lots of fent fentanyl, unbelievable fentanyl overdoses, and then continuing gang uh, homicides. Anyway, I don't know. As long as you can stay anchored in the present moment and delight in the person in front of you, death has no power whatsoever. And once you're not afraid of death, you're really kind of not afraid of anything. And it's a helpful practice to practice your own death and the death of the folks that you love, knowing that it'll all end. And all you have is the tender time in between, so... Thank you, you two. What a, what a gift to be with you. Can we thank them? Dialogue is a podcast of Calvary's Lenten preaching series, a 100-year-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent. Dialogue is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series Coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about the home of dialogue in the Lenten Preaching Series, Calvary Episcopal Church is an eclectic bunch of Christian people. We don't all think the same thoughts, or dress the same way, or vote for the same candidates, or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into a beloved community marked by unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to Dialogue at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee. 